Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today I'm going to talk to Scott Berthelet about his book on the early French indigenous fur trade in the Hudson Bay watershed and the origins of the Métis Nation in Canada. Scott Berthelet is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Queen's University. His research focuses on the history of Indigenous peoples with considerable attention to the Métis and their relations with New France and the English through the Hudson's Bay Company. His book, Heirs of an Ambivalent Empire, French Indigenous Relations and the Rise of the Métis in the Hudson Bay Watershed, is an outgrowth of his PhD dissertation, which he completed at the University of Saskatchewan in 2020. His book was published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. I should also mention that Scott, originally from Winnipeg, is also a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation. Scott, it's a great pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Greg. Looking forward to our chat. Scott, can you give us some of the backstory on why you chose this subject for your dissertation, a dissertation that ultimately produced the raw material for this book? The story for the dissertation project and then later book actually goes back almost 10 years to 2013 when I was uh, an MA student at the University of Manitoba. In that May, I believe, I attended my first ever academic conference uh, in Ottawa, uh, which was a big trip at the time. <laughs> it was a graduate student colloquium type, uh, type conference. So it was a yeah, grad student conference at the University of Ottawa. And at that time, as I was working on my master's project, I was really interested in the history of New France and didn't really have the Métis on my mind very much. My research was mostly centered on uh, Pierre Gauthier de Varennes, Sire de la Vérandrie, or La Vérandre, uh, who was a French explorer and key figure in the French indigenous history of Western North America. Um, so he was very active in the 1730s and 40s. So I was there to present on this research and when I got to the conference, um, the panel I was presenting on was chaired by um, one of the professors at U Ottawa, uh, Dr. Nicole Saint-Onge, um, who might be familiar to some of our listeners. Um, she's a pretty big name in the field of, of Métis history and Métis studies. And I was surprised upon arriving to the conference room that Dr. Saint-Onge recognized me or at least more accurately, my, my surname immediately, even though we had never met and I was just a grad student from an out-of-province university. So there was really no uh, academic reputation worth recognizing. Dr. Sainonge recognized me because of previous research she had done on 19th century Métis families at a settlement called Pointe Agruette on the Red River, just south of uh, Winnipeg. Uh, it's called St. Agat today. It's a, it's a small village. And my own ancestors had used to live there, but they had been dispossessed of their lands following the Manitoba Act of 1870, where many Métis families uh, lost their lands to incoming settlers from Ontario and Quebec. And this family included two of my direct ancestors, a father and son, both named Joseph Bertelet. These were like my grandfathers, great-grandfathers times four or five. But as interesting as this, I guess, family tidbit and history of the Métis Nation was, I was still there at that time 
in Ottawa to present on my research on New France and on La Vérendrie's relations with Indigenous peoples in the early 18th century, which seemed chronologically quite distant from my late 19th century ancestors at Pointe-à-Crouette. But following this meeting with uh, Dr. Saint-Onge, which I would continue to think about um, afterwards, and of course I'd continue to have contact with her as well, it eventually, I think, drew me to a much more interesting history by making me realize that La Vérendrie's relations with the indigenous peoples of the Northwest was part of a much more expansive story of indigenous French relations in the Hudson Bay watershed. And indeed, more important than La Vérendrie as this, as this character or his aptitude was that his explorations would set in motion a series of events and cultural processes that would ultimately lead to this highly unintended outcome, which was the birth of a new people being the Métis. So following the completion of my master's thesis, I set out to write this history that told the story of indigenous French relations in the Hudson Bay watershed, one that led to and accounted for the rise or the birth of the Métis people. So this is, in essence, a history of the forebearers of the Métis. And I think that this is what this book tries to do is to connect this earlier history of New France to the eventual origins of the Métis people. Can you uh, tell us then why you were drawn to the Hudson Bay watershed as the site of your study, aside from the fact that you grew up in Manitoba and it's in the watershed where you grew up. So that might be one reason, but there must be more profound reasons to selecting that as your site of study. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say there's definitely that personal connection as well, being Red River Métis from Manitoba, smack dab in the middle of that territory. Not to mention, too, it was the operational headquarters of the Hudson's Bay Company, and that's where all the records are kept today at the Manitoba Archives. So it did make it really convenient as I pursued my PhD project. I could go home and visit my, my folks, see my friends from back home, and still you know conduct research at the same time. But I guess on a more academic level, though, you know, I found as I, you know, read the historiography, reviewed the literature, that indigenous French relations in the Hudson Bay watershed had been understudied. This region, uh, the sort of northwestern extremity of France's North American empire, has been largely forgotten if you look at French colonial historiography. Why was it historically ignored? Well... It's been ignored in favor of regions such as the Great Lakes, the Illinois country, Louisiana, and the French Caribbean. Uh, Part of the reason why these other regions have been more heavily studied might be that the source base for those areas simply is much more voluminous and extensive than it was for the Hudson Bay watershed, which never produced the amount of documents on the scale that you would get in an area like the Eastern Great Lakes, where there was a lot of, um, you know, back and forth between the various, um, you know, Jesuit missionaries and French uh, colonial officers sort of dealing with with events like the Iroquois Wars, for example, the uh, the event that sort of saw New France and some Great Lakes indigenous allies fighting the Haudenosaunee Confederacy or the, the five nations of the Iroquois. So you have these sort of monumentous events happening out east that really takes up a lot of attention of the French colonial government. And I think the Hudson Bay watershed is so peripheral to a lot of these events that it doesn't produce the same amount of sources. So there wasn't much to work with. And 
What I found, though, I was able to do much more with the Hudson Bay watershed by turning to the sources produced by the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, an English fur trade company who nevertheless were very active in the region, produced a lot of documentation that recorded the activity of French and French-Canadian voyageurs and coureurs de bois. So in a sense, I was able to get at French activity by turning to an entirely different uh, set of documents that I think are often ignored by French colonial historians, at least. That's right. And uh, much of that documentation was published decades ago by the Champlain Society to preserve that history. But tell us a little bit about Radisson and De Grossier, the uh, radishes and gooseberries of Paul Newman fame. Why did they leave the employ of their French trading company to join the Hudson's Bay Company? And what lesson or lessons, if you like, did future administrators in New France take from this whole episode? Yes, Radisson and uh, De Grossier, these are probably the most famous examples of Coeur de Bois in Canadian history, as you say, um, popularized by the uh, by the Peter C. Newman uh, histories of the Hudson's Bay Company, and they've been much written about and romanticized. And they're really at the struggle that took place between France and England for control of the Hudson Bay region. It sort of all begins for Radisson and de Grosier uh, in 1660, when they returned from a very successful, albeit illegal, trip, uh, a fur trading trip they conducted uh, west of Lake Superior, where they connected with a lot of indigenous people, like the Cree, Dakota, and the Cinnaboyne, who had been hitherto unknown to the French. Once they return to the colony, the governor of New France fines them for having illegally traded furs without permission. Angered by this, the two coureurs de bois, Radisson and Grosier, they make their way to London, where they're granted an audience with King Charles II. They pitch their idea for a northern, northern fur trade venture on the shores of Hudson Bay, and they're able to uh, basically sell themselves to the king's inner circle and, and sort of receive funding and backing. And this gamble pays off. A group of wealthy London investors employ Radisson and de Grosier and establish the Hudson's Bay Company, backed by a royal charter in 1670. This kind of cements their fame, uh, I guess, in Canadian history. The, really, the key to their success, though, was their knowledge and good relations with the indigenous peoples of this vast territory northwest of Lake Superior. And this would set the foundation for the English claims to the Hudson Bay watershed. Radisson, in particular, had entrenched himself in an extended Cree kinship group, uh, having even been adopted by a Cree leader. The mistake, though, that the, that the French colonial officials realized was that they had lost out on this potential access to these Cree, uh, Dakota, uh, Assiniboine communities of basically uh, northern Ontario, Minnesota, uh, you know, Manitoba, sort of, of that area. And when they realized this mistake, they attempted to lure Radisson and de Crozier back into the service of Louis XIV. And they were able to do so when a financial dispute arose between the two Coeurs de Bois and members of the Hudson's Bay Company uh, Committee. So this is where it gets complicated. They, now they're working for the French again. And uh, the French found their own company, which they call the Compagnie du Nord. And this company is meant to basically combat HBC operations in Hudson Bay. And Radisson and de Crozier are actually able to draw most of the Cree trade back into the hands of the Compagnie du Nord. 
surprisingly, they switch sides one more time when they find out that their chief benefactor at the French court died. Uh, this time, though, de Crozier retires and just goes back to live in Canada, but Radisson returns to English to work for the HBC. And the decision of this is felt almost immediately. Uh, Radisson is able to draw the Cree traders now back into the hands of the HBC. And he does this because his adopted Cree father had established a trade alliance based on kinship, not on any sort of allegiance to uh, a king or a queen or an empire or a trading company. His allegiance was always to his adopted son, Radisson. So Radisson's Cree father honored the trade and kingship relation with Radisson, regardless of whether Radisson was backed by French or an English company. It didn't really matter. So really, the fortunes of these chartered companies, whether it be the HBC or the Compagnie du Nord, seem to wax and wane in accordance with whichever company or nation Radisson and de Crozier had aligned themselves with. So the big lesson, I guess, out of the Radisson de Crozier story uh, for the administrators of overseas territories, at least, was that A, the Hudson Bay watershed was an indigenous space where family ties represented the main social structure and avenue of power, and B, that Cour de Bois, like Radisson and Crozier, who were tapped into these family networks, were valuable assets of empire. And I think this was a very important takeaway um, you know, quite early on, uh, especially for the French, uh, as I sort of study over a period of many decades and see how their relationship evolves with these, you know, Cour de Bois. You've already used the term Cour de Bois a few times. I'd like you to define this term as specifically as possible. And in the context of other backcountry specialists, that's a term you use and I very much like, but other backcountry specialists like Daniel Gréselon Dulut and Nicolas Jérémy de La Montagne. Tell us a little bit more about these Cour de Bois and how they operated. Yeah, absolutely. Cour de Bois is a French colonial term that's used to refer to the uh, illicit or illegal fur traders operating out of New France. Uh, basically, these are folks who engaged in the fur trade without a congé or a fur trade license. The term literally translates to runner of the woods or runners of the woods, uh, singular, plural. Um, but yeah, it is referring to this, uh, this group of uh, illegal traders. And often the term cour de bois I see misapplied all the time, um, sometimes calling men like uh, Samuel de Champlain or La Salle or uh, La Varandre cour de bois, when really they're not. They're, they're crown officials uh, carrying uh, out you know, different uh, orders. But yes, I also do use the term backcountry specialist, which I use in my study, at least, to refer to those coureurs de bois that the French crown attempted to convert into loyal imperial agents. Uh, a perfect example that you bring up, uh, uh, who I'll talk about here is Daniel Gresolon Zulut. Um, whose name is often anglicized uh, to Duluth, like the city in Minnesota, uh, which is named after him at sort of the uh, western extremity of Lake Superior. Um, like Radisson, um, Duluth's career begins with an illegal voyage west of Lake Superior, where he trades with the Dakota Sioux. And 
like Radisson as well, when he returns to the St. Lawrence Valley, he finds himself under attack by government officials. In his case, it's the intendant of the colony uh, who's in charge of all sort of civil and financial administration um, who goes after him. But in a happy set of circumstances, I guess, Duluth ends up being backed by Governor Frontenac, who was a political rival of the intendant and often supported the actions of Coel de Bois. So backed by this new patron, Duluth actually travels overseas, goes to Versailles to convince the French court that his expedition to the Dakota had served the greater interest of the French crown in Western North America by expanding its uh, alliance system amongst indigenous people. Duluth continues to find favor and is appointed as the principal ambassador and peacemaker between New France's Great Lakes allies and the Dakota Sioux. Later on, Duluth becomes a war leader, helping the French government rally indigenous people of the Great Lakes to go on mil military campaigns against the Haudenosaunee, who the colony was then at war with. After fighting the Haudenosaunee in the Eastern Great Lakes, Duluth again returned to the Lake Superior region, where he was ordered to prevent the northern nations, um, so like the Cree and Anishinaabe, from trading their furs with the English at Hudson Bay. So Duluth establishes some of his own posts in the Lake Nipigon region uh, to prevent some of these traders from going to the English. Essentially, he saves them the trouble of venturing all the way to the, uh, to the bay to trade at the English uh, posts. In the process, he also lines his own pockets and amasses a small fortune. Well, it seems like someone like Duluth um, did what he was told by Crown authorities. I think as I show my book, he was the one largely shaping colonial policy through his own uh, pursuit of wealth and status. After all, he had taken the initiative to establish relations with the Dakota. He had journeyed to Versailles to convince crown officials of the correctness of his decision. And he had, in the end, forged a role for himself as a very important cultural intermediary and diplomat in the West. Um, there's the other great case study of uh, Nicolas Jérémy de La Montagne, but perhaps um, I will ask readers uh, to uh, look, <laughs> look up that one for themselves in, the, in chapter one of the book. It's uh, the case study alongside Duluth, which I think is also, he's a very different type of backcountry specialist, more one working for the uh, Compagnie du Nord. Now, you have some wonderful illustrations in the book, including maps. And uh, in one chapter, you have a number of these maps that shows a kind of an inland sea in the West with access to the Pacific and to the whole, what we would call Asia today. And there was a very strong belief that this existed, and yet it was based upon pretty nebulous evidence. Why was this such a strong belief in New France that there was this inland sea that was going to be relatively easy to access once it was discovered and therefore provide the French with access to the so-called Orient? Mm -hmm. This is a mystery I've puzzled over a lot as I researched this dissertation. And the origins of this French idea of a Mer de l'Ouest or a Western Sea um, is somewhat ambiguous and multifaceted. What I was able to find is that this belief in the Mer de l'Ouest seems to have first originated um, in the workshop of the Delille map-making family in Paris. Um, the son, Guillaume Delille, um, who became um, 
sort of what the French called the premier géographe du roi or the royal geographer of Louis XIV's court, theorized that an inland sea was supposedly located, yes, in the middle latitudes of North America and that it could provide a passage to the Pacific Ocean. Um, this early belief was based on narratives from navigators like Sir Francis Drake and Juan de Fuca, who had reconnoitered the Pacific coast at the end of the 16th century and thought that they had spotted a navigable inlet to an inland sea. But uh, for Guillaume de Lille, who was researching this question, more reports from North America soon followed from Jesuits, colonial officials, military officers, and so on. So uh, we have a report, for example, from the uh, Baron de La Hontan, who was a military officer who claimed that he had explored 100 leagues westward along a great liver, ri excuse me, river that flowed toward a sea. Uh, another official, an intendant of New France, uh, Antoine Denis Rodeau, uh, said in one of his, um, his musings on the topic that the Dakota language bears no resemblance to the other indigenous people, but rather contains, as he put it, some Chinese pronunciations. Uh, so this indicated proximity and communication between Western North America and Asia, perhaps. Um, Father Chalavois, who was a Jesuit dispatched to New France uh, to personally investigate this question, concluded that the Western Sea must be between 40 and 50 degrees latitude and that its discovery could be facilitated if the French made an alliance with the Dakota Sioux. So once again, kind of what uh, Rodeau suggested about these Chinese uh, pronunciations. So what is it about Lavarandre, in particular the commonly accepted historical portrait of him, that propelled you to come to a very different conclusion? You stated that was sort of one of the reasons that you started your PhD journey in the first place. What was the historical evidence that convinced you that he was, in fact, a bit of an amateur and a bungler, as I would describe it, based upon the evidence that you found? Yeah, Leverandre is such an interesting figure. I mean, he gets involved with this whole Western Sea question just as excitement was reaching its apex. Just to, to put it briefly, a Cree trader uh, named Oshaga drew a map with charcoal and a piece of birch bark for Lavarandre when he was stationed on the north shore of Lake Superior. Uh, and Lavarandre believed that this map represented the waterways leading to this long-sought Mer de l'Ouest, or Western Sea. So Lavarandre becomes sort of the last figure to get involved in this Western Sea question. And this is where he gets his fame as, a, as an explorer of the Canadian West. And when I wrote my MA thesis back in 2013 and 2014, uh, I focused on indigenous agency and on Lavarandre's failure to achieve uh, the type of French indigenous alliance he desired in the Northwest. I was initially driven to disprove that he was a French explorer and fur trader worthy of praise, as was the case in Manitoba, where we have, you know, statues and monuments and plaques to uh, Lavarandre. Uh, out west, and I think even in Quebec somewhat, uh, Lavarandre is treated as one of the three great explorers of New France alongside Samuel de Champlain and La Salle. But I argue instead, and I continue to argue in this book, 
that La Vérandry was an ethnocentric imperial agent, a lackluster explorer, and a war profiteer who trafficked in indigenous slaves in the 1730s and 40s, which is, I know, quite the accusation. But I think this interpretation is clear uh, if you read the primary source material produced by La Vérandry and a number of other government officials. This is actually all available through the very excellent Champlain Society uh, publication by Lawrence J. Burpee in the 1920s, uh, which has all, uh, which is a fantastic compilation of a lot of this primary source material that you would find in the French archives. But just to give a few interesting snippets, I guess, of, of what I discovered about La Vérandry that made me sort of frame him as a bit of a, uh, inept, uh, explorer, um, so the first sort of misstep that La Vérandry makes is that he allows his son to accompany a Cree and Anishinaabe war party against the Dakota Sioux in 1734. This turns out to be a huge mistake since it positioned the French as belligerents in an ongoing Cree and Anishinaabe war against the Dakota. And for this, the Dakota retaliate against the French, which culminates in an attack that kills 21 Frenchmen at Lake of the Woods in 1736, including Lavarandre's son, a missionary priest, and 19 voyageurs. Perhaps the largest mistake that I alluded to earlier was the trafficking in Dakota slaves, a move that further antagonized the Dakota and further estranged them from an alliance and commercial partnership with the French. It wasn't that Lavarandre was just following orders either. He was acting in direct opposition to the governor of New France's policy to make an alliance with the Dakota. Certainly, La Vérandry may have also felt pressure to accept the Dakota captives as tokens of alliance and friendship from his Cree and Anishinaabe allies. I can speak very briefly about his explorations as well, because he is known as an explorer, but I posit he was kind of a lackluster explorer. And it's just evident if you look at the timeline. It essentially took him five years and eight months to reach Lake Winnipeg from Lake Superior. Of course, this included lots of trips back to Montreal to sort out business and government affairs. But really, in the 12 years spent uh, out west, Lavarandre and his sons never made it any further west than the forks of the Saskatchewan River. In 1738, they glimpsed the Missouri, but never even considered pursuing it as a potential river that flowed or did flow, but that you could follow to the west. Uh, even though this is the route that the Lewis and Clark expedition would take more than half a century later. So those are really, I think, the three uh, biggest uh, pieces of evidence that could sort of bring against uh, Lavergandre in this case. Well, with the fall of Quebec in 1759 and then the final conquest in terms of the international European treaties that came out of, uh, out of this um, New France was no more, and you had the mainly Scottish traders out of Montreal uh, in the wake of the conquest uh, moving out west, but they really followed, I think, the transportation and post system that was already set up by the French traders and the voyageurs and the indigenous traders that existed at that time. Can you briefly describe the nature of this transportation and post system that had been set up by the French and their indigenous allies. Absolutely. By the end of the 17th century, the French had forts and trading posts throughout the entire Great Lakes Basin. But it really wasn't until the 1720s or so that the French began to cross the height of land 
northwest of Lake Superior, uh, that being the area that demarcated the watersheds. And crossing from the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed into the Hudson Bay watershed, where all the rivers, lakes, and streams began to flow towards Hudson Bay instead. So it's a significant threshold for the French to, to cross, and it takes significant logistical planning to achieve. The first uh, challenge, I guess, is that it's no longer possible to make a round-trip voyage. The distances now are simply becoming too vast. Because of this, the first development we see is the emergence of two classes of voyageurs, one to transport merchandise and furs between Montreal and Lake Superior, and a second to operate in the waters northwest of Lake Superior. So we have the, the mangeurs de l'or, or the pork eaters, who are the voyageurs who made only this, you know, I, I say short run, but really uh, the, the, the still quite long voyage between Montreal and Grand Portage at the western end of Lake Superior, and the emergence of the hommes du nord, or the northmen, who ventured beyond Lake Superior by traversing that height of land. New technologies also come into play, too. We have the uh, larger freight canoes, which are operated on the Montreal to Grand Portage route through the Great Lakes. But once you cross into the Hudson Bay watershed, uh, it becomes necessary for smaller, more versatile canoes. So we, have the, we see the Canot du Nord, or the North canoes, being used more and more. The majority of the posts that the French would build northwest of Lake Superior were established in the 1730s, and some at pretty critical locations that would remain important the following century. So we have Fort St. Pierre at Rainy Lake. That remains a very important site for future fur trade operations. Another big one is Fort Rouge at the forks of the Red and Assiniboine River, present-day Winnipeg, Manitoba. And to take Fort Rouge as an example, it doesn't survive much of the infrastructure itself deteriorates over time, right? These are wooden forts, but the good post locations continue to be occupied by fur traders and indigenous people for uh, the following century. So the site of the forks of Fort Rouge, it later becomes Fort Gibraltar under the Northwest Company, Fort Douglas under the HBC, later Fort Gary, Upper Fort Gary, and eventually the communities of Winnipeg and St. Boniface, and now today, of course, the, the city of Winnipeg. So that's sort of how the technology and the infrastructure uh, develops as the French begin to push west from Lake Superior into the Hudson Bay watershed. One of the French fur traders that uh, continued business after the conquest was Louis Primo. And he was a person that I puzzled about for many years when researching the history of the fur trade in the Churchill River in northern Saskatchewan. Tell us a little bit about this remarkable trader and how he facilitated the Montrealers, uh, mainly Scots, uh, as well as uh, some of the New England traders to push further into the Northwest. Mm -hmm. He was such a fascinating figure. And he was an excellent case study um, to, to, to sort of prove, in fact, that not all French Canadians left the Hudson Bay watershed during the advent, during the events of the of the Seven Years' uh, War, in fact, many actually chose to stay behind with their indigenous fur trade families. And Louis uh, Primo, it was um, such a man. We know that he entered the Hudson Bay watershed um, 
in the 1740s, late 1740s, from a voyageur contract we have, and that he was employed at the French posts. But we see him emerge again later uh, in 1766 when he shows up at the uh, HBC headquarters of York Factory seeking employment with the company after living with his Cree family for many years. Ferdinand Jacobs, who was the chief trader at York Factory, interviewed uh, Primo and ascertained that he could be of service to the company uh, as an inland trader because of his profound backcountry experience and, and uh, expertise. Ferdinand Jacobs goes on to describe Primo as very talkative, but that he could neither read nor write, but that he was a quote-unquote master of Indian languages, meaning that uh, Primo probably spoke Cree very well, but may have also spoken Anishinaabe and Dene too. It turns out that in addition to his kinship ties and linguistic skills, Primo was also very business savvy, uh, almost too much for the HBC's liking. He repeatedly warned the HBC of the growing commercial threat of the Montreal peddlers. Um, so after the British conquest of New France, there's an influx of Scottish and New England merchants who begin trading out of Montreal into the Northwest before the Northwest Company is formed in 17. Uh, 79. So early on, I just kind of referred to them as the Montreal peddlers, smaller fur trade outfits. But Primo sees this as a threat to HBC trade. Many HBC traders were actually very suspicious and maybe even a little jealous of Primo. Uh, Matthew Cocking, for one, he's an HBC uh, trader, disliked Primo and thought he was showing signs of divided loyalty. And in fact, he gave a very scathing account of Primo writing that he was certain that he had a secret kindness for his old masters, uh, meaning the French, but I guess at very least the Montreal-based traders. Uh, Cocking's suspicions actually are proven correct when Primo abandoned company service in 1773 and goes to basically work for the Montreal peddlers, who he helps uh, basically cut off HBC trade along the Churchill River route, which really limits uh, the furs coming into places like uh, Prince of Wales Fort or Fort Churchill that the HBC operate. And in fact, Primo becomes such a prominent trader in these waterways of the uh, the Churchill River system that there's even a lake that gets named after him, uh, Primo's Lake. And this appears on Philip Turner's uh, large composite map of North America. And then David, David Thompson also puts Primo's Lake on his map too. So from this very advantageous position, Primo is able to intercept a lot of Cree and Dene trade on this northern uh, route of the Churchill River. So I think we can see a parallel between Primo and Radisson again, too. Similar to Radisson a century prior, commercial success in the Hudson Bay region seemed to wax and wane in accordance to whichever company Primo aligned himself. And I think we have this great example of him working for the HBC and then kind of turning around and working for the uh, Montreal peddlers in these years. Well, Scott, this has been a fascinating book to read and uh, a wonderful interview. And I know that our listeners are going to learn so much and hopefully they'll go directly to your book after hearing <laughs> the interview. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Greg. It was great being here.
My guest today was Scott Berthelet, the author of Heirs of an Ambivalent Empire, French-Indigenous Relations and the Rise of the Métis in the Hudson Bay Watershed, published by McGill-Queen's University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way that you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 8, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press journal team who also support the Champlain Society. Mm-hmm.